Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Bunny has already earned some wonderful praise. Michael Schaub writes in the LA Times, Awad does so many things right in Bunny. Bunny functions perfectly as both a dark academic satire and a creepy horror novel, and Awad threads them both seamlessly. She can make the reader laugh out loud in one paragraph and cringe with fear in the next. Laura Vandenberg writes, Bunny is a stunner. And Kirkus Starred Reviews calls it a viciously funny bloodbath, which I think is one of my favorite two combinations. <laughs> um, Mona Awad is the author of 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, which was awarded the Amazon First Novel Prize, the Colorado Book Award, and was shortlisted for Giller Prize in Canada. Her writing has appeared in McSweeney's Time, Electric Literature, Vice, and Elsewhere. She earned an MFA in fiction from Brown University and a PhD in creative writing and English literature from the University of Denver. She currently lives in Boston. Uh, also joining us this evening is Anna Joy Springer. She's a cross-genre writer who investigates the weird intersections of sacredness, perversity, and inner being. Uh, she's the author of The Vicious Red Relic, which we have for sale back at the front counter. Um, the Vicious Red Relic, comma, love, uh, and the Birdwisher, a murder mystery for very young old, uh, for very old young adults. Her work appears in zines, journals, anthologies, and recordings. An associate professor of literature at UC San Diego, she teaches experimental writing, feminist literature, and graphic texts with an emphasis on confrontation and contemplation. She's a sober Buddhist, middle-aged, white-presenting femme ex-punk from the Central Valley, living in Los Angeles. Uh, we're thrilled to have them with us this evening. Please join me in welcoming Mona Awad and Anna Joy Springer. Okay. Oh, I'm not used to sitting down. read from The Vicious Red Relic Love. Um, oh no, what do I do with it? No, you cannot hold my gun, that is so sweet. Thank you, I'm gonna put it on my book. Okay. Uh, this is a, um, an AIDS memoir um, and uh, it, it, the book function, you won't know from the section that I'm reading, but the book functions as um, a time machine so that all of the people reading it can go back in time to help. This is a little aluminum foil elephant that I, the writer, narrator, am sending back to my first girlfriend who um, committed suicide like about, with she had AIDS pneumonia and she committed suicide like right about like maybe six or seven weeks before protease inhibitors came out. So um, I wrote the book as this way to, uh, you know, to think about her death and also um, to imagine that all of us reading it could send this creature back in time because in literary time it's all happening at the same time. 
Um, but this, you won't be able to tell. I'm reading a forest. There are metaphorists throughout the book. The forest of myth and stink. In the forest of myth and stink, there's a long line for the toilet. The bathroom is a series of slits in the ground. The potty slit area is a site of unmediated expression. It will become a library of material natural history, one of several located in the forest of myth and stink. The line is long. One might hold one's bowel movements for hours, waiting for the go-ahead to scatter biographically amend the collection. All too often, the area may be sealed before an anxious visitor gets the chance to contribute. Long waits sometimes end in embarrassment. Therefore, hiring a weight laborer to hold one's place in line is popular practice among the well-off. It is not acceptable to ask the worker to bribe his way to, to the head of the line. Still, an economy of illicit gifting has become rampant. Those whose patience and luck have paid off get the opportunity to make history pushing unassailable verity from their innermost selves, they excrete their uniquely crafted organic texts, rich in unmarred confession. Some teary young parents hold newborns over the slits and shake them until the infants release liquidy stools. Other guests don't stop at humble pee and poo. On the advice of their therapists, bulimics have begun vomiting into the openings triumphant. Other guests fling themselves wildly in order to release an even greater variety of natural secretions, while still others flick ripe navel bacteria, dandruff, or vinegary spores from between their toes into the steamy, precious collection. Tears of gratitude slide down cheeks, drip between thighs, and find final rest in the ground. There's the 10-minute warning whistle, after which the area is cleared of guests. Next. Muscular young technicians run in with buckets of fresh earth to pour over the raw data. Finally, the stew is left to ripen or cook for an unspecified length of time. Only after the materials have been stewed, reviewed, edited, and cataloged will the site be open to the public for purposes of research and amusement. Maps to approved library sites are provided only after forest officials have tested them for contagions. Contaminated areas are sealed off, destroyed, and reforested. Forest officials worry that ill-intentioned characters might attempt to break into a site under editorial review in order to add or otherwise amend the raw data. Some may have even more terrorizing ends in mind. To lower the risk of such an invasion, cooking areas have been disguised as regular wilderness grounds, for instance, meadows or thickets, impossible to locate without the help of a beast's keen sense of smell. Luckily, animals are naturally repelled by the sights. In the forest of myth and stink, serene meadows cover former shitholes. Who would suspect a pair of young thrill-seekers, untoned and unattractively dressed, of conspiring to use only the miniature pencils and yogurt spoons permitted in the forest to dig blindly into the earth, searching for off-limits or contaminated data. Why would such girls waste their useful, youthful hours employed in such thankless and illegal pursuits? What could they possibly expect to gain in unearthing off-limit excretions, 
embryos curled up like fiddleheads, alien cells, two kinds of cum blended together, and a handful of goldfish bones. Regardless of their intentions, how unlikely that they would discover the precise location of this unintelligible hodgepodge under the very site upon which they chose to picnic. How even more unlikely that they would find enough material unburned to attempt to translate even a few meaningful shreds. Forest officials consider this scenario low risk given the unsavory nature of the task. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, thanks, Anna Joy. I'm so glad to be able to read with you. I love your work. Um, so I'm just going to um, read the first chapter of Bunny. And for those of you who um, don't know what it's about, I'll just give you like a little uh, synopsis. So Bunny is about a clique of female graduate students who call each other Bunny, and they move and speak as one. And the story is told from this outsider student um, her name is Samantha, and Samantha hates the bunnies, but she's also fascinated by them, and she wants to be included, um, and she ends up kind of getting sucked into their clique, into their cult, and it turns out that um, these women are doing something off campus, these ritualistic things off campus that are a little violent um, and magical, and actual rabbits are involved. So I don't want to spoil it by saying anything further, but also I'll just read the first chapter. And it starts at the beginning of um, their second year together. So they're in an MFA program. And Samantha has like spent a summer away from the bunnies, and she's seeing them for the first time. And she knows she has a year ahead with these girls, and she's kind of dreading it. <laughs> okay. We call them bunnies because that is what they call each other. Seriously, bunny. Example, hi, bunny. Hi, Bunny. What did you do last night, Bunny? I hung out with you, Bunny. Remember, Bunny? That's right, Bunny. You hung out with me, and it was the best time I ever had. Bunny, I love you. I love you, Bunny. And then they hug each other so hard, I think their chests are going to implode. I would even secretly hope for it from where I sat, stood, leaned in the opposite corner of the lecture hall, department lounge, auditorium, bearing witness to four grown women, my academic peers, cooingly strangle each other hello, or goodbye, or just because you're so amazing, bunny. How fiercely they gripped each other's pink and white bodies, forming a hot little circle of such rib-crushing love and understanding, it took my breath away. And then the nuzzling of ski-jump noses, peach fuzzy cheeks, temples pressed against temples in a way that made me think of the labial rubbing of the bonobo or the telepathy of beautiful, murderous children in horror films. All eight of their eyes shut tight as if this collective asphyxiation were a kind of religious bliss. All four of their glossy mouths making squealing sounds of monstrous love that hurt my face. I love you, bunny. I quietly prayed for the hug implosion all year last year, that their ardent squeezing might cause the flesh to ooze from the sleeves, neck holes, and A-line hems of their cupcake dresses like so much inane frosting, that they would get tangled in each other's Game of Thrones hair, choked by the ornate braids they were forever braiding into each other's heart-shaped little heads, 
that they would choke on each other's blandly grassy perfume. Never happened, not once. They always came apart from these embraces intact and unwounded despite the ill will that poured forth from my staring eyes like so much comic book villain venom. Smiling at one another, swinging clasped hands, skins aglow with affection and belonging as though they'd just been hydrated by the purest of mountain streams. Bunny, I love you. Completely immune to the disdain of their fellow graduate student, me, Samantha Heather Mackey, who is not a bunny, who will never be a bunny. I pour myself and Ava more free champagne in the far corner of the tented green where I lean against a white Doric pillar bedecked with billowing tulle. September, Warren University, the Narrative Arts Department's annual welcome back demitasse because this school is too ivy and New England to call a party a party. I stand here, I sway here, full of tepid sparkling and animal livers and whatever hard alcohol Ava keeps pouring from her drink me flask into my plastic cup. What's in this again, I ask? Just drink it, she says. I observe from behind borrowed sunglasses as the women whom I must call my colleagues reunite after a summer spent apart in various trying locales, such as remote tropical islands, the south of France, the Hamptons. I watch their fervent little bodies lunge for each other in something like rapture, nails the color of natural poisons digging into each other's forearms with the force of what I keep telling myself is feigned, surely feigned affection shiny lips parting to call each other by their communal pet name. Jesus, are they for real? Ava whispers in my ear now. She has never seen them up close. Didn't believe me when I first told her about them last year. Said there is no way grown women act like that. You're making this up, Smacky. Over the summer, I started to think I had too. It is a relief in some ways to see them now, if only to confirm I am not insane. Yes, I say, too real. I watch her survey them through her fishnet veil, her David Bowie eyes filled with horror and boredom, her mouth an unimpressed red line. Can we go now, she asks me. I can't leave yet, I say, my eyes still on them. They've pulled apart from one another at last, their twee dresses not even rumpled, their shiny heads of hair not even disturbed, their skins glowing with health insurance as they all crouch down in unison to collectively coo at a professor's ever-jumping shih tzu. Why, she says, I told you, I have to make an appearance, I say. Ava looks at me slipping drunkenly down the pillar. I have said hello to no one, not the poets who are their own fresh grunty hell, not the new incoming fiction writers who are laughing awkwardly by the shrimp tower. Not even Benjamin, the friendly administrator to whom I usually cling at these sorts of functions, helping him dollop quivering offal onto dried bits of toast. Not my workshop leader from last spring, Fosco, or any other members of the esteemed faculty. And how was your summer, Sarah? And how's the thesis coming, Sasha? Asked with polite indifference getting my name wrong always. Whatever response I offer, an earnest confession of my own imminent failure, a bald-faced lie that sets my face aflame will elicit the same knowing nod, the same world-weary smile, a delivery of platitudes about the process being elusive, the work being a difficult mistress. 
Trust, Sasha. Patience, Sarah. Sometimes you have to walk away, Serena. Sometimes, Stephanie, you have to seize the bull by the horns. This evening, all I have done in terms of socializing is half smile at the one the bunnies call Psycho Jonah, my social equivalent among the poets, who is standing alone by the punch, smiling beatifically in his own antidepressant-fueled fever dream. Ava sighs and lights a cigarette with one of the many tea lights that dot our table. She looks back at the bunnies, who are now stroking each other's arms with their small, small hands. I miss you, bunny, they say to each other in their fake little girl voices, even though they are standing right fucking next to each other, and I can taste the hate in their hearts like iron on my tongue. I miss you, bunny. This summer was so hard without you. I barely wrote a word. I was so, so sad. Let's never, ever part again, please. Ava laughs out loud at this, actually laughs, throws her feathery head back, doesn't bother to cover her mouth with her gloved hand. It's a delicious, raucous sound, ringing in the air like the evening's missing music. Shh, I hiss at her, but it's already done. The laughter causes the one I call the Duchess to turn her head of long, silver, fairy witch locks in our direction. She looks at us, first at Ava, then at me, then at Ava again. She is surprised, perhaps, to see that for once I'm not alone, that I have a friend. Ava meets her look with wide open eyes the way I do in my dream stares. Ava's gaze is formidable and European. She continues to smoke and sip my champagne without breaking eye contact. The duchess, in turning toward us, causes a ripple effect of turning among the other bunnies. First Cupcake looks over, then Creepy Doll with her tiger eyes, then Vignette with her lovely Victorian skull face, her stoner mouth wide open. They each look at Ava, then at me in turn, scanning down from our heads to our feet, their eyes taking us in like little mouths sipping strange drinks. As they do, their noses twitch, their eight eyes do not blink, but stare and stare. Then they look back at the Duchess and lean into each other, their lip-glossed mouths forming whispery words. Ava squeezes my arm hard. The Duchess turns and arches an eyebrow at us. She raises a hand up. Is there an invisible gun in it? No, it's an empty, open hand, with which she then waves at me, with something like a smile on her face. Hi, her mouth says. My hand shoots up of its own accord before I can even stop myself. I'm waving and waving and waving. Hi, I'm saying with my mouth, even though no sound comes out. Then the rest of the bunnies hold up a hand and wave too. We're all waving at one another from across the great shores of the tented green, except Ava. She continues to smoke and stare at them like they're a four-headed beast. When at last I lower my hand, I turn to her. She's looking at me like I'm something worse than a stranger. Thank you. Yeah. So we can take any questions that you have if you'd like. That you was want. amazing. Oh, I'm such you. a fan. <laughs> I'm such a fan. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah, you. of course. Um, yeah, it was I'm a very excited about this book. I loved your last one. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Other fans here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah.
Well, I mean, is it a true story? I'm sorry. No, um, it's fiction. Absolutely. There's a lot of fairy tale and horror and you'll see there. Are, I mean, there are some monstrous creations in this book that are literally monstrous um, and slightly bunnyish. Um, so hopefully, um, yeah, that's fun and not too, too scary, but it is also scary. Um, I, I would say that, yeah, there are some dynamics that I think I observed in my MFA that I was interested in exploring in fiction. And the dynamics were kind of, it was interesting to me that we were, you know, we were all in our 20s and 30s. And I've gone to a few different uh, graduate programs, actually, um, like three. Um, so I've observed some things in the course of going to these programs and also just, you know, visiting campuses and stuff that the social dynamics it's kind of like we're still in high school in a lot of ways, um, even though we're adults, and um, cliques form inevitably, and um, there are class differences that come up and other kinds of differences that come up, you know, and, um, and there are, of course, outsiders always, you know. They're just people who don't feel like they belong in those places, and they're very insular, you know, and we're all kind of speaking the same language, and we're forced to be intimate with each other very quickly, um, because we're sharing work with each other, so we're vulnerable, um, and we're asked to be imaginative, you know? We're, we're activating our imaginations, and we're vulnerable, and it's in this insular, secluded space. I think a lot can go wrong. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just, to me, that just seemed ripe with the possibilities of horror and, and magic, too. And so that's why kind of both, both threads are in the book, magic and horror, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Program, right? yeah. I also went to the same MFA program. Yeah, right. You should you should answer that first, Angela. I think old writers should go to MFA programs. Yeah. 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 I I think like especially programs that are fully funded. Um, once someone has enough time under their belt not having that kind of time and resource, it seems like a magic miracle because it is, if you can get it. There's programs to pay for too, and there's, there are reasons to do that. I wouldn't necessarily go into debt like I'd go into for a house for it unless it was my biggest dream in the whole wide world and then fuck it. Right. You know, um, but um, so I like I wish that more people over 60 were going into grad school and um, they have some stuff to write about. They've probably um, read some things. Um, so if I were like seducing a population, that's where I'd go. Um, and uh, but I mean, you know, I have lots of things to say. I've been directing the program at UCSD since I helped start it about 12 years ago. I've been directing it for about the last eight years. And I'm done in nine days <laughs> with that. Um, I can talk more to people individually about our program if you're interested. Yeah. yeah. I would, I'll go ahead, yeah. Um, I went to Brown, um, did the MFA program there, and I also did a, a master's at the University of Edinburgh in, in English, and I studied oh. fear in the fairy tale, and that was really, um, really useful in, in, in working on this book. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't have been able to write my first book without going to 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 Brown and doing that MFA. It was, it was incredible. It was a gift, you know. You get two years of funded time to just work on a project. But Anna Joy's well, I agree with Anna Joy that it's good to 
to go when you have a bit more life um, experience. Um, just because I, I knew what I wanted to write about, I knew what I wanted to focus on. Mm -hmm. I already had half my book mm -hmm. um, in my in my back pocket, mm -hmm. and I came there with the full intent of just focusing on it and and finishing it, so that when I came out, I'd have it. I'd have it done. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I would have been able to do that in my in my in my twenties, but I mean, I think it's different for every writer. Some writers, you know, come into their own voice um, much faster, you know. Um, but for me, it was the perfect time to go. You know, uh, I had my voice, and I had I had a sense of my voice, and I had a project, and I'd I'd had some life experience that told me I wanted the time to like be able to work away from the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good question. There's a few different threads going on, um, like in the in the book. So there's a few different variants. I focused a lot on Beauty and the Beast, just because. Uh, in Beauty and the Beast, uh, you know, there's so many different things going on in the embodiment of the of the beast. You know, he embodies a lot of anxiety, but he also embodies a lot of desire, and those things are conflicting. And it's really he becomes really interesting. You know, um, so I the book is about fear and desire in a lot of ways, and how that's how that manifests um, between women and and social dynamics between women, but also um, you know, uh, kind of more more romantic iterations um, that that happen like both between women and then between men and women as well. Um, so so fairy tale was really useful to me in kind of in kind of exploring those dynamics in a in a magical like kind of in a magical way. You know, um, the other thing that this book kind of plays with is the the notion of the imagination as a place that if you live in your head. You can kind of go in two different directions. You can go in the direction where you can make your wildest dreams come true as an artist, um, but you can also like live out a nightmare. You're perfectly free to do that when you live in your head, right? And that can be the same moment. Hmm. The same moment can be a nightmare for you, or it can be a dream come true. And I, 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 fairy tale is really interesting to me in that it, you kind of it you kind of move through both both outcomes, usually within the course of a fairy tale. So fairy tale was useful for Bunny because of that, because of that connection with the imagination. Yeah. Um, I really love, uh, actually I really love David Mitchell. Um, I read a lot of David Mitchell when I was working on this book. I just, I love his like first person, um, present tense uh, kind of narrations. And because he's first person present tense, it's so immediate and he can get away with a lot of stuff, you know? Like, it's very disorienting and scary, especially in um, Slade House. Has anybody read Slade House? Mm -hmm. I love that book so much. It's so terrifying, but it's also really wondrous because you're with the character as they're kind of moving through this really scary experience. And, um, and you're also like kind of, you're, you're coming to it with him. So, so yeah, it's just, it's a really, really great exercise in how much you can get away with when you're kind of in the moment with a character. He's kind of like the Daniel Day-Lewis of writers, I think, because like he can do any voice and get away with it. So, so yeah, I really love him. And I love Jean Reese because she's really great mm -hmm. at voice too, like those first person narrators. I like it when, when a narrator is really kind of intimate with me in a way that feels dangerous like they could tell me anything, you know? 
um, and they're on a weird path. You can feel it. Like there's just something unstable about the voice mm-hmm. from the start. I love narrators like that. And so Gene Reese does does narrators like that, and so does David Mitchell, I think. So that's yeah, and fairy tales, obviously. I'm always reading fairy tales. Yeah. What about you? What what, what writers are you loving? Well, I I was t- um, Suzette Meyer. Oh right, uh, yeah, Canadian yeah. Uh, Caribbean Canadian uh, writer. Uh, I just uh, just finished her book. Uh, it's Doctor Jean something in the hairs of Crowley Howell. Have you heard of this book? Uh, uh, phenomenal voice as well, first person, and she's falling apart. Like it's just like post tenure at a university setting, and things are literally falling apart. Um, and it's sort of it never gets into, but it mirrors sort of what's happening in the institution in general right now. Um, but meanwhile, she's midlife, and this is kind of where she's going to peak. It's a sad, wonderful book, <laughs> um, and also fantastical. In, uh, surreal, not fantastical. It's very realist, but with that surreal horror of everyday life. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I love her. Um, yeah, and I'm reading uh, right now the, um, what is it? My favorite thing is Monsters, the graphic novel, and really digging that. Um, yeah, those are, those are two. I have a question for you. Yeah. So I was thinking about your last book and what I've heard of this, and I'm thinking about like the like grossness of intimacy mm-hmm. and how you know like intimacy is like there's a lot on like on the it's now like so wonderful to explore fearlessness and intimacy, which mm-hmm. it is right it is, and yet now I'm seeing these amazing sort of these amazing feminist takes on on how um how much of a forced trap it can feel. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like um, there's, the, there's like this naughty, non-intimate fake thing, mm-hmm. but then there's the thing of like constantly checking whether you're liked. Yeah. Constantly checking whether you're liked and needing yeah. to get petted all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's got this hysteria. It's a different mm-hmm. kind of hysteria. Yeah. Um, and so, and I see that a little bit. Um, I see the grossness of intimacy or like the, the teeth of intimacy mm-hmm. among women. Yeah. Um, and it's not anti-feminine. No, no. It's not, um, but I see that in both of your books. Mm-hmm. Is it something you consider, or am I making shit up? No, no. I, I think I think that's part of the horror of this book is like mm-hmm. the notion that um, the way that women are affectionate with one another, or the way they perform affection, can seem very violent, and um, it seems violent to this character. But is does it seem violent? and scary to this character because she is outside mm-hmm. and because she longs to be inside. You can't fully trust her take on the intimacy as, as horrific mm-hmm. because she's outside of it. So a lot, a lot of the horror comes from her own place mm-hmm. in, the, in the social uh, dynamics of that mm-hmm. group, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she does see their intimacy as horrifying. You know, she really does. And that's, but she's, it also is what draws her in that same thing that horrifies her draws her towards them inevitably. And she gets pretty deep into the clique and really shifts. She becomes actually, uh, this doesn't really spoil it, but there's one point where they share the same voice. Um, All the bunnies share a voice together. Yeah. Yeah.
Do you want to answer that first, or? Sure. I, you know, it really depends on the project. It, um, but uh, but yeah. with the longer projects, I tend to do it a really, really dumb way that I would not recommend to anyone. And because I write, um, you know, works across genre. Sometimes I'll write in one genre for a thing, but I tend to, and with pictures and, you know, all sorts of, you know, multimedia on the page kind of stuff. And um, and then I have to figure out what's unifying and what's unifying all these bits. Um, and I, I don't really, I don't like to think about my work as a bunch of fragments. I like to think of it as a flock. And so what's the thing that's bringing these things together? And then what's narrative propulsion? If it's narrative, what's narrative propulsion? If it's not narrative, what's the propulsion? And so I usually, then I have to kind of reverse outline it and see what I've done that doesn't have so many words around it. And I usually will reverse outline like a book length project two or three times in order to see what's missing um, and what to fill in. Um, right. right now, the other thing that I'm working on is just a painted project. So it, you know, it just takes forever, and that's what I do is I sit there in front of it forever. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me too, it's different for, with every project. But there is something that I tend to do. I, I I start usually with a conflict. Like there's a scene that there's like a there's either a conflict or a moment of tension, and then I just try to follow that moment of tension like moment to moment as closely as possible. And that usually has an arc. All conflicts have an arc, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I try to just pay attention to that. And then that usually moves me forward in terms of the plot. Mm -hmm. um, with Bunny, that, that happened for 13 Ways. For every story, it started with a moment of tension between two people. And then I would just kind of pay attention to where that would inevitably lead those two people. Mm -hmm. um, with Bunny, I knew the end. And the minute I knew the end, I, I felt like I had it, you know? And then I just had to kind of write towards towards the ending. So that was kind of great. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't know anything else. All I knew was the end. Um, so all mm -hmm. the scenes kind of came as a result of knowing the end and knowing the start. I knew the start would be this girl staring at these other girls being like, oh my God, I hate you, but I'm inevitably going to become, you know, sucked into this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel like this is just um, like maybe a, is there like a morality or recommendation in there, or is this just something that you gotta like? Is it like solace and mm -hmm. going through it, or you know, or maybe even just you now? What do you think? Is this something yeah. that you can change? Or? I think I think you're yeah. I think I like the idea of solace, you know, because this character is is deeply lonely. You know, and it is about how imagination can be a place where you can find consolation, um, but it's also a place that you can't fully trust to give you consolation because it's your imagination. Anything can happen, and you can go down a really dark road. So that's where the maybe that's where the kind of um, you know uh, cautionary tale element of it is 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 I would say. Um, but yeah, it's I mean it's a book about. A lonely character and it's a book about being an outsider and and kind of taking away the romance of that you know and sort of she sort of uses her outsiderness as a way of coping with the fact that she's not part of this group but it's a way of coping you know it's actually a pretty painful embarrassing thing to be an outsider so and it's coloring the way that she sees the whole world around her and these girls um, so it's actually generating the horror 
her outsiderness is what's generating the horror mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I studied first as a poet, um, and uh, you know what I read tonight is more along the lines of some you know narrative poetry in some way, or you know con concept essay in poetry form, um, and uh, so I, I, it is. Um, it's music based. It's in the rhythm, and so if mm -hmm. it's it's almost like if I were composing uh, an orchestral piece, and then everyone got to say like some words right at a peak moment, um, it's like I create like lulling moments, and then try to have there be like little jackpots, or and that that can be in one section, or that can be over across a bunch of pages. But I notice if if there's a, like a lot of information in a few pages, then I need to have something really um, sexy or poignant or fast-paced or funny or something to break it up in order for that for that slowness rhythm to work. So I think of it in terms of breaking up the rhythm, like I would with a musical composition. Yeah. yeah that's cool. Yeah. Uh, it seems like both of the pieces wander away from realism. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm wondering um, when does that decision get made to venture away from, from all this you know, reality and into fabulism or surrealism or nightmare? And uh, what does that wandering away from that line give you in terms of expressive power? Hmm. You go, you go first, okay. Yeah. Right. Well, there's a direct correlation between her level of um, vulnerability and the amount of horror that's actually happening in any given moment, or the amount of wonder, the amount of like magic that's happening in any given moment. It's it's her rawness, like how thin her skin is that makes those moments of magic happen. So they're kind of barometers for her like emotional reality, her psychological reality. Yeah, I, I think that, that, I mean, I wasn't um, consciously aware of that, but looking back, I, I think that's definitely the case. The magic came from that, you know, from her just emotional reality for sure, mm -hmm. which is like very, very violent, very turbulent in the course of the book because she is outside and then inside and then I won't, I won't go any further than that because I don't want to spoil it, but yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I write memoir mostly, and it's not, it's not memoir that often might look like memoir, mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons why I use fabulism in memoir or genre-specific um, styles with memoir, um, and then I tweak them um, because, you know, number one, my story is really sad. I have a really sad story up until, you know, 10 years, you know, whatever, 15 years ago. Super, super sad. And, you know, and a lot of really interesting, cool, fabulous, amazing things, too. But if I say it straight, first right. of all, it's boring. Right. I know my story. I don't care. That's not, I'm not making my story for me because I can just think it, right? And I, you know, do my little journal and, you know, so... 
um, then I'm like, well, why am I giving you this um, reconstructed, engineered version of things that are like facts that happened to me and, and also telling you that? Because it'll, it'll change the way you read it, right? It's like, it's, I'm telling you that it's fact and I'm telling you that it's fabulous. What do you do with that? And, um, and what it allows me to do is um, make my own story um, more interesting and also less pity porn. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the, the thing with writing a sad personal story, and I think that this is probably true in fiction too, although it's, I think for me it's way easier to fall into pity porn um, writing memoir about a sad life. Um, it, I, I, it's like I'm constantly um, that parallel, you know, that parallelism using allegory or metaphor or something that is like like the other thing, but describes it in a more vivid way. Yeah. Um, that actually allows me to tell the story that I really wanted to. That's the thing I wanted to share. Right. The thing that I didn't want to share is the thing that I share with my therapist. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to thank everyone so much for coming. Yeah, it was so great. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much for your attention. Yeah. Um, you. you are amazing. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.